better. And we're going to turn to uh, two selections, both from 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 first, and then uh, verses 19 to 25. And you can have a moment for looking those up in your own Bibles if you want to. The Bibles under the seats are back if you want to use those so that you can refer back to anything later if you'd like, and it'll be on the screen as I read as well. So these will be the words of Samuel, the prophet of Israel, uh, in a sort of farewell address after he has anointed King Saul to be king over Israel. And he's speaking to the people about uh, some important things they, they need to know about this change in leadership. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. And then turning to verse 19. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins an evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So we have been working through uh, this teaching series, which is focused on, on failure, which is lots of fun, right? Maybe, okay, maybe not fun, but this is not really a subject you can avoid if you read through the Bible. The human figures of scripture are pretty regularly failing or dealing with the repercussions of failure or trying to sort out the failures and conflicts happening in the midst of their communities. And that's all in there for a reason. We are meant to learn from it. And when I started us down this road two weeks ago, I said that failure is a part of life. How we respond to the failures and the pe- of the people and the systems we're connected to, as well as our own, 
that plays a big role in our ability to simply experience any peace and happiness in this world. And our healthy response to failure is also a way we can show ourselves to be set apart as followers of Jesus. But of course, we're not just talking about failures, we're also celebrating restoration. And we began with Peter, who failed Jesus by denying him. But then Jesus goes to him, reaches out to reestablish their relationship, to recommission Peter to the work of serving the church. One of the best parts of our good news as Christians is that we are not defined by our failures or our mistakes or our sin. Jesus gave his life for us so that we can be defined by the new life he gives us. Our God is a God of restoration and reconciliation and renewal, and those are just the R's. There's lots of other good stuff too. And last Sunday, Erica moved us from personal failure to restoration in community and church life, looking at that struggle that comes from being, trying to be the people God has called us to be when we all have different backgrounds and experiences and understandings and preferences and personalities and different levels of faith and maturity. And today, I'll shift us and our focus toward leaders and leadership. What do we do about the failure of leaders? Leaders have greater influence, right? That's actually the simplest definition of what a leader is. It's a person with influence. So if you're sitting there saying, well, this isn't about me, chances are you have some influence over somebody or something. And that influence can bring people together for good, but that same influence also magnifies the damage that is done in failure. And that damage can be a major source of doubt and disillusionment for Christians, and it can be a reason that non-Christians reject the church as well. Some of you are old enough to remember names like Jimmy Swaggart, the the famous televangelist who was defrocked from his denomination after a prostitution scandal. And there were a few stories like that back in the 80s that were just a tremendous embarrassment to the church and a hindrance to evangelism. The stories of, I feel like, of, of the ones that have hit me have become more, much more recently, even just the last couple of years. We had Ravi Zacharias, the head of the largest apologetics ministry in the world, a man who traveled the world to teach people why faith was reasonable, why God was real. And turns out on the side, he was running his own sex trafficking operation, smuggling girls from Asia into massage parlors he owned. Or there was uh, Jean Vanier, who was the co-founder of L'Arche, which is this really beautiful ministry that brings people with intellectual disabilities into community together. Some of my friends have worked at L'Arche Homes. And this is a man who just came across as this absolute saint. And after his death, his organization finally you know, ran a long-delayed investigation and found that he had sexually abused multiple employees over the years. And there's, there's just so much more that come into my news feed, right? The, the head of one of Canada's largest churches right now, the history of sexual abuse by certain Catholic priests, and on and on it goes. And when you read these things, you just say, this shouldn't be possible. How is it that people with such important and successful ministries were actually living such an appalling lie? And what else were they lying about as they taught people about faith and knowing Jesus? And so this is, on a large level, you know, this is what's kind of out in the air people are breathing. But this is also a topic that hits us on a more local level. And for me, I find it interesting because I have several different perspectives all at the same time. Because right? I have been a churchgoer, affected by the choices and behaviors of Christian leaders that were not always the best. 
I am a Christian leader who has messed things up, who has caused hurt, who will continue to do that from time to time so long as I carry on in pastoral ministry and take that risk. It's also a part of my job here to invite other people to take leadership positions and to serve in different ways and to, to help them understand what's required of them, to try to encourage and support their work, work that is not always easy and doesn't always go smoothly. Many of you have experiences with this kind of failure. Within my own family are people who have been through painful church splits, who have been part of dysfunctional church leadership situations. Some of this, unfortunately, is to be expected. The New Testament tells us about those early churches. It shows us that from the beginning, there has never been a church that lived in perfect harmony or whose leaders got everything right. That's one of the reasons that we are called in faith to imitate Jesus, who restores and reconciles and renews. Jesus even forgave the people who tortured him and nailed him to a cross, saying, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. As the church, we regularly do not know what we are doing. But despite all of this, there is a way. There is a way to be the church where people can thrive and God's kingdom can grow. There is a way to lead and grow through the ups and downs. There is a way to love and build up your church and its leaders, even in the midst of failures large and small. And we can learn a thing or two about this way from today's passage. I think 1 Samuel 12 is one that deserves to be much better known than it is, and so I'm, I'm kind of glad to be sharing some of it this morning. How many of you have ever attended a retirement party for somebody who's been at the same job for a really long time, like 35, 40, 45 years? Has anyone ever been to one of those? And, you know, usually if the person's well-liked at least, there's hopefully a lot of good stories, uh, appreciative words to share, hopefully some good food that someone was willing to spring for. But there's something that probably didn't happen at any of the retirement parties you've been to, because just imagine for a second the guest of honor gets up there in front of everybody and demands to be put on trial, right? Accuse me. <laughs> Tell me. Anytime I mistreated any of you, did I ever lie or cheat or steal while I worked here? Say it in front of everybody. That could get a bit awkward, but it wouldn't be boring. <laughs> and that's pretty close to the situation that we read about in 1 Samuel 12. Samuel for most of his life, from the time he was really just a boy or a youth, had been the primary human leader of Israel, right? God was the ruler, but Samuel was the prophet and sometimes judge who provided God's direction and leadership. But then the Israelites, mainly out of fear of a particular enemy, started demanding that God give them a king like all the other nations around them had. And so God, through Samuel, explained why this would be a bad idea. He says, look, you know what a king is going to do? A king is just going to take the best land for himself and his officials. He's going to take your sons to work the fields he's going to or to be in his army. He's going to take your daughters to you know, make his food and his perfumes. He's going to take some of everything you create as a tax. You don't need the protection of a king and his army. God had already promised to protect them. All they needed to do was be faithful. But what seemed easier than that was to get a king. And so God eventually relented. He allowed them to have one. And Samuel anointed Israel's first king, Saul. And then with Saul right there beside him, Samuel gives this retirement speech. And the main focus is on how Saul treated the people when he was the leader. And I think it's a kind of test for the leaders to come. He wants the people to think about these criteria for leadership. And so we ask them, has, has he ever failed to lead with integrity? 
Has he taken an ox or a donkey from anyone? Has he cheated anyone, oppressed anyone, taken a bribe, subverted justice? And the people say, no, you haven't done any of those things. And so he'd never taken anything from anyone's hand. He'd not failed his people, at least not in this way. And if you know Samuel's story, you can see some of the reasons he might want to do this. Samuel, as a boy, was sent to to live with the high priest of the time named Eli. And Eli's sons, who all served as priests in the temple, they were not faithful like their father. They were corrupt. They abused their positions in the temple. They stole. They threatened. And so Samuel ended up rising into his position of leadership because they were such scoundrels that ultimately led to their deaths, and Samuel ended up in charge. And sadly, the very same thing happened to Samuel himself. His own sons accepted bribes. They perverted justice. And so Samuel knew that the integrity and the example of Israel's leaders was so important. It would have enormous influence over the people's faithfulness to God. As the expression says, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom, or so go the people. And this, in the history of Israel, is very true when we read through the Old Testament. The bad kings turned to idols, they oppressed their people, and the people followed their example. The good kings helped bring people back from this evil. They moved them toward faithfulness and justice again. Unfortunately, the good kings were fairly rare compared to the bad ones. Things got so bad that God allowed his people to be conquered and exiled. He let his own temple be destroyed and those people taken to Babylon in order to help them learn to walk faithfully in a new way. Because the way of kings and capitals and temples was not working. And so when given the chance to say something to this attentive audience that included the new king, what Samuel did was try to set an example for what people should expect from their leaders. Honesty and integrity, not a hint of corruption or taking advantage of their power and position. Samuel is getting the people with God as their witness to agree that, yes, Samuel had led in this way. And it's kind of a challenge to Saul sitting beside him there to do likewise. Are you going to be able to say this when your time has come? When you read a little farther in this chapter, the Israelites gathered there start to realize that they have made a mistake. They have sinned against God by ignoring his guidance and by trying to replace his rule with the rule of a king. Now they're suddenly worried about what the consequences of this will be, and they appeal to Samuel, help us. Like It's a little late, but we've made a terrible mistake. And Samuel reassures them, okay, well, yes, you have made a terrible mistake, but you're not, you're not doomed by this failure. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And this is a terrible temptation we get when we know we failed, is to kind of run from God, run from the people we've hurt. And God says, no, don't do that. You know, serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away from him. And Samuel tells him the answer is what the answer has always been, which is faithfulness. If the people and the king are faithful to God, things will still go well for them despite this failure. But if the people reject God and turn to idols and treat each other unjustly, then things aren't going to go well for them. And Samuel promises for as long as he can that he will keep trying to help them. Far be it from me, he says, that I should sin against God by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you a way that is good and right. So I said before that I think this chapter deserves to be better known. I don't think I ever heard this story in a sermon or a Bible study or anywhere else kind of growing up or or being in church circles, which is too bad because this has so much to say. 
There is application here to politics, to business, to family life, but I'm going to focus on the church and offer a few things I think we can take away from it. And the first one is to make sure we have the right standard for success. Right, the, the Israelites liked King Saul because he was big and strong and good-looking and he fit their image of a warrior king. But that was not the right standard to apply for their new leader. Saul did some things well, but he, was, he ultimately failed to trust in God and he was a, he was a pretty unstable guy. In the Christian world today, sometimes we prize leaders who are compelling communicators, who are extremely knowledgeable in some subject, who demonstrate a great deal of confidence. And sometimes those leaders are given far more influence than their character can bear, and they come crashing down. In a small church setting, sometimes we're tempted to listen to people because of a particular skill they have or because simply that they hold very strong opinions rather than listening to those who are quietly faithful those who are spiritually mature in the background. That is not the best standard. Samuel stands out among the many people who led Israel into disaster after disaster because he measured success by faithfulness and integrity. He served his people, not his own agenda. That was Samuel's philosophy of leadership. And if more leaders adopted it, and more groups of people insisted on it from their leaders, then the world and the church would be much better for it. So keep that in mind in all the ways that you hold influence over anyone or anything, because this also means you. Second thing I think we can draw from this is that we <clears throat> need to be careful not to be too invested in our human leaders. Right? This was Israel's big problem in trying to replace you know, God's rule with a king's rule. He said, well, I think they, you know, we're going we're to put all our hope in this person, in this fallible person, instead of letting God be our true ruler. Leaders matter a great deal, but it's a very bad idea to be overly invested in any one leader or group of leaders because they're human beings, so they're going to fail at times. Hopefully in ways that keeps the door open for reconciliation and restoration, but sometimes those failures do serious and lasting damage and they mean the end of a person's leadership, or they should at least. And some of these stories that bother me so much from the wider world it's amazing how quickly those people end up back in leadership positions again when what they've done is so disqualifying. If your sense of faith or passion for God is caught up in the example of a particular human being, then you're making a mistake. We are called to be imitators of Jesus, whose spirit becomes part of us when we choose to follow him. So we should be thankful for all the ways that different leaders teach us, encourage us, help us walk with Jesus, but... We should not depend on those leaders to get everything right as some sort of proof that our faith is well-founded. And I think we can do that sometimes and think, well, this person's so amazing, so compelling, then that must mean that the God they serve is real, the things they say are true. And that's just not the way we want to be doing things. You only need one pedestal and you shouldn't put anybody but Jesus onto it. And the other problem with being too invested in human leaders is that it can actually cause everybody else to become complacent. Like, well, maybe I don't really need to, to study the Bible or, or pray. I'll just listen to this person who's so wise. I don't really need to take responsibility for anything in, in my church because I'm, I'm not in the leadership, right? I'll let other people handle those things. We can outsource our faith to human beings if, you know, to other human beings who aren't us if we're too invested in human leaders, and you can get the impression that there are actually two classes of people in the church, that there are 
the people doing the important stuff with titles, and there's everybody else. But that is not the vision of the church given to us in the New Testament. The Bible says that we are the body of Christ, where each part fits together with all the others and provides something that the whole body needs. We're all called to be faithful, or as Samuel put it, not to turn away from the Lord, but to serve the Lord with all your heart. And the third thing I think we can draw from Samuel here is that leadership is a long game. So, you know, have the right standard for success. Don't put too much stock in human leaders. And, And to remember that leadership is a long game. Samuel was called to God's service as a boy. And he continued to fulfill that role until he was a very old man. And we see in this chapter that even after he's not the leader anymore, he still says he'll keep serving them, that he'll keep praying for them, that he'll keep trying to teach them what is good and right. That's a hard thing to do for an entire lifetime. It makes it that much more impressive that no one could say anything against Samuel. I attended a retirement service for a pastor probably five or six years ago now. And this is someone who'd been in ministry well over 40 years. They'd served their particular church that they were retiring from for just about 30 years, I think. And at that point, I'd been a a pastor just long enough to realize that long and faithful service like that was not a small or easy thing. And I also remember there was this interesting responsive reading as part of this service where both the pastor and the congregation were invited to forgive each other for the ways that they had failed one another during those many years. And I hadn't seen anything like that before, but I think that was a meaningful addition. If you were here with us on our Mission Edge weekend, there was something that uh, Greg Jones said to us. He, he said, you know, that we're, as the church, we're called to love one another. And he says, and I find it very, very easy to love you people because I don't know you. This is, this is the way it, it tends to be. It's, it, gets, it gets harder <laughs> once you... You do, and so that requires more for us, more of those R's of reconciliation and restoration and renewal. The reality is that the longer you try to serve in ministry or in anything and leading in anything, the more mistakes you make, the more disappointments and frustrations you cause. And it's also true that the longer you serve in some way, the more times that you may end up blamed for things you couldn't do much about or end up bearing burdens silently that you're not really empowered to share. And with all of that going on, there has to be a combination of grace and accountability for our leaders or our churches will not last. If there's too little accountability, then leaders become ineffective or entitled or even corrupt. And if there's too little grace, then nobody will want to be leaders. And who wants to give their time and their energy to being a deacon or a church council member or a ministry leader if, if what they get for their trouble is mainly criticism and complaint? I mean, yes, they should be doing what they're doing for God and not for the affirmation of people. But if the people around them mostly give them the impression that they're not wanted or they can't do things right, then most leaders will not last. Lasting churches need lasting leaders. And lasting leaders need grace for their shortcomings and encouragement in their efforts and actual help so that their service does not simply become a tiring burden. And that's especially true in a small and rebuilding church like ours where a few people are trying to hold a lot of things together that the church needs in order to function. So when you're engaging with our volunteers, please do so in a way that's likely to cause them to still be happily serving and leading in 10 years or 20 years from now. 
Express appreciation for the things they do which bless our church. Ask if they need help with something. Sometimes I think about the, some leaders in churches as people who are, you know, they're at that leaky dike and they've already got all 10 fingers into 10 different holes in that dike. And then I think, you know, don't be someone who walks up to them and sees two more holes and says, well, what are you going to do about those? <laughs> some of our leaders have their hands very full. Let's be sure that we are building them up and not tearing them down. Let's be sure we're not expecting a lot from them and little from ourselves. Are you praying for your church and its leaders? And shouldn't that become, come before anything else? The relationship between the king and his people or pastors and church leaders and the rest of their congregations or business leaders and employees, these are all complicated at times. Churches should be different but sometimes they suffer from the same silly conflicts and ego-driven power games and self-destructing leaders that can be found in any other organization or institution. And as we explore Samuel's address, we see, though, that a hopeful future requires something both from leaders and from the people they serve. It requires leaders who act justly with a genuine desire to serve God and others faithfully, and it requires that the people are attentive to God that they bear with each other, that they turn from evil and not tolerate it at any level. And so we should look to Samuel and take care in determining what success means. What should we expect from ourselves and for others? We should read Samuel 12 again and see. We also shouldn't get too invested in human leaders. If your faith is too wound around another person who isn't Jesus, then it is time to fix that. We shouldn't just sit around waiting for the official leaders to do everything either, but wield our own influence to see what Jesus has asked us to do. And last but not least, it's worth remembering that leadership is a long game. Samuel sustained his godly leadership across a lifetime. How will you use your influence to set an example for faithfulness? How will you treat those who take the risk of being church leaders and seek to build them up? We're the church of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, the Lord of heaven and earth. We should be different. We should be better. We should lead differently and follow differently than we see in any other place or institution or organization in this world in order to glorify our God. So would you pray with me as we just lift some of these thoughts up to God? Holy Spirit, we need you to take these words of scripture and, and my best efforts to reflect on them and make them real to us, to bring them into our minds and hearts in a way that is helpful to us and which will build up your church, which will help us to be the people that you called us to be. Only you can do that. And I pray that you will find willing hearts here open to you doing that. Lord God, we thank you for those who have led us in different times in different ways who have led us to great, greater faithfulness in you. And God, we, we pray for those who have become discouraged or disillusioned by failures of those who were meant to lead and weren't able to do so with the integrity that we would want to see. God, we pray for those who themselves are hurting or wounded, who have had negative experiences as leaders. Lord God, and I pray that you would help to heal those things that you would show them that you still have good for them to do, that you still want to make use of all that they are and all that they have to offer, Lord God, that there can be 
the restoration that's needed, just as you did for Peter. And Lord God, I pray that you would help us all to see that within our families, within our workplaces, within our communities, within our church, we all have some level of influence. We can all lead to some degree. May we follow in that example of Samuel who was so determined that people would be able to say, no, there is nothing in your hand. You have treated us well. You have treated us right. You have been the leader you were supposed to be. May it be so for us. In Jesus' name, amen.